Every breath I take, every moment I'm awake, I give you my life, I give you my soul. There's no holding back. And uh, that's really going to uh, uh, connect, I think, with our text and our message this morning. So as we begin this new sermon series, uh, looking at Jesus' seven I am statements in the Gospel of John, I need to um, step back and take a look at the the bigger context uh, before we jump into our specific text today. And so the first one here is uh, the, the first level of context for these I am statements was what we talked about last week, Exodus 3, that God introduces himself to Moses and to Israel as Yahweh. I am. Uh, God is present, always present, everywhere present. And as a consequence of that, God doesn't change. God just is the I am. So the second element of uh, context is that we saw last week in Hebrews chapter 13, the writer there states, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And it's this unchangeableness, um, if that's a word, it's this unchangeableness of, about God that, that is really unique to God. Um, it certainly isn't a, a trait for people. People change all the time. And so it, it's significant that here in Hebrews, that attribute is given to Jesus. He is the same, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And just to really um, push home how much this uh, is connected to God. In Revelation, the book of Revelation, chapter 4 and verse 8, we see the creatures around the throne and they're crying out to God, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And so this, this presence is uh, idea of presence is one that, that is connected to God. And that's what the creatures around the throne are singing to God now in praise uh, that he was and is and is to come. The third point of context is we come back to, to John's gospel. We've had Exodus, we've had Revelation. Now we come back to, to the actual gospel of John and there as he begins his gospel, in chapter 1 and verse 1, he, he talks about Jesus and makes this extraordinary claim. He, he refers to Jesus as the Word. And he begins by saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so this is a bold claim to say that anything other than God is God. Uh, and, and, you know, that's how people would have heard that. There is one God. But John begins by saying the Word is also God. And now he's going to spend the rest of his gospel demonstrating, illustrating, arguing, trying to prove that Jesus, the Word, is indeed God in the flesh. And then the fourth point of context 
is over in John chapter 4, um, as, as we travel through the Gospel of John, and we're not able to take a lot of time, even though we're going to spend these seven or so weeks in John's Gospel, we're hardly going through chapter by chapter or verse by verse. But I want us to know that in chapter 4, Jesus is talking with the Samaritan woman at the, at the well where he meets her. And he, he tells her that he can give her living water. And, um, and then everyone who drinks this water will never thirst. Okay, so, so get that picture, get, get that phrase, that terminology in your mind. Then he says, I can give you living water. And when you have that living water, you will never thirst. And so with those four points of context about, G about the whole I am and, uh, and, and how that relates to the divinity of Jesus, okay, then we turn to John chapter 6, which was read for us just a little earlier. Even when we get to John chapter 6, again, there are some, there's some context. The chapter begins, if you have your Bible there, well, how does it begin? What story does it tell at the beginning of John chapter 6? Feeding of the 5,000, that's the heading in my Bible. Okay, Jesus feeds 5,000 people. What does he feed them? Fish and bread. Okay, fish and bread. So he has this dramatic miracle it's the only i think the only one of the only miracles that are in all four gospels the feeding of the 5000 it's a story about food then uh, then there's sort of this jesus walks on the water to get over to the other side of the lake and uh, then we'll we'll pick it up in just a moment in that story about the feeding the 5000 at the end of the day, everyone is fed. All 5,000 plus people, they are all fed. They are filled, and there are leftovers. doesn't say there are leftovers of the fish. Maybe they were just so good, people ate them. Maybe they were going to be smelly, so they didn't keep them. I don't know. But it says that there were leftovers of the bread. And there were 12 baskets, not just a few leftovers, 12 baskets of leftover bread. In verses 14 and 15, and this is important, this is the, the other point. One is that there's this miracle about bread, and then how do people respond? After people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So when the crowd saw this great miracle, taking just a few loaves, multiplying it, and feeding 5,000, they recognized that there was something special about Jesus. They recognized, they said, he must be the prophet. No one else could do this. Not just a prophet, the prophet. The prophet they had looked for. The, the prophet sent by God. Perhaps they even conflated him with the Messiah. And said, this is the Messiah. And they said, we need to make him king. And, and 
It's a little hard to tell when it says they make him king by force, whether it means we're going to force him to be king or sort of make him a king of force, you know, that, that uses force, that, that is a military leader. And so that's their response. And this moment is significant because it represents the pinnacle of Jesus' popularity. This is the height of Jesus' ministry by any, um, any measure that, that most people would make. Okay? This is the moment where if you're coming to make change, you're coming to bring a revolution, you're coming to establish a kingdom, then you need to be a king. You can't make a kingdom unless you're a king. And Jesus says, no thanks. What happens next is really unexpected, I think. Jesus begins criticizing the crowds. He walks across the water, gets to the other side. The crowds chase after him. And um, when he sees them coming, he says, what are you guys doing here? Truly, I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. He's unhappy with their motivation for following him. Think about that. Jesus is at the height of his power, height of his influence, height of his popularity. And he's unhappy because those that are giving him that influence and giving him that popularity have a motivation that Jesus doesn't approve of. Now think about it though. It seems perfectly reasonable for these people to have followed Jesus around the lake looking for food. This was in rural Galilee. Uh, A lot of them would have been fairly poor peasants. Um, And people will do a lot of things for food, right? Maybe you remember early on in the pandemic, some of our grocery stores didn't have a lot of food on their shelves. Anyone remember that? We sort of got, got over that, haven't we? But some of the things that happened back then were uh, there were organizations that gave away free food. I remember some farmers, for instance, that uh, said, hey, we're going to give away free milk. Well, this is a slide of, uh, I just had to find one. This is in Oswego, and a dairy organization up there uh, said, we will give away milk. Okay, we don't want the milk to spoil. We're going to give it away. Everybody can get two gallons. You would think they were giving away two gallons of gold, right? Two gallons of milk. How long would you sit in your car for two gallons of milk and a box of some sort of food that they were giving? You see, free food, when food is scarce, is tremendously motivating. Do you hold anything against these people that went to get two gallons of milk and a box of assorted food? Do you hold anything against this crowd that has followed Jesus around the lake because they got fed yesterday and they're hoping for more today? So why is Jesus so upset with them? It doesn't seem that unreasonable. Jesus immediately gives an explanation that begins a long conversation. And uh, 
really we need to go through it verse by verse, line by line, to, to, to make it all fit together and make sense. Uh, we don't have time for that. There's more people coming at 10.30. So uh, he says, maybe, maybe if you come back at 10.30, you know, we can take extra time and go through it. But he says to them, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Here's Jesus' first mention of food that endures to eternal life. It's kind of cryptic, isn't it? I mean, we don't really know what he's talking about at this point. So Jesus continues and speaking of himself, he says that in order to please God, okay, so rather than working for food that spoils, to, to, to work, he says, go out and work for food that endures to eternal life. And then he says, this, this is what that looks like. Believe in the one he has sent. Speaking about himself. And, and then what happens, what comes, if you're just reading down through there, and I'm going to paraphrase this, is it's almost like the crowd begins bargaining with Jesus. Okay? And, and they say, okay, if you want us to, to commit to your leadership, if you want us to, to follow you, we need another sign. I know we had a sign yesterday, but we need another sign today. Your sign yesterday with the loaves, that was nifty. We liked that one. Can you do it again? You see, Jesus, the great leader Moses, back in the day, he was able to give his people bread every day. They'd just go out and they would pick up the manna. And it was there day after day after day. Maybe you could do something like that if you want to be a leader like Moses. So in, chat, in verse 32... Jesus points out the major flaw in their thinking. The flaw was that the, the food that endures for eternal life that he's been talking about is a who, not a what. He says, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven. That's their first mistake. But it is my Father who gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. You see, it was never Moses giving, his, giving the people of Israel manna. It was always God giving that manna. And now in your presence, God is sending down bread from heaven again. And the bread that he sends down this time, instead of just being for Israel, this bread is for the world gives life to the world. In verse 35, he again clarifies and gets even more specific. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. There's that reference back to the Samaritan woman, right? The living water that will never be thirsty. I am the bread of life. So in the context of this conversation, Jesus is really pushing this comparison with Moses because that was where the, the people were coming from. 
And you can see up there on the chart, um, Moses gave manna daily. Well, not that Moses gave it, but uh, we, under Moses' leadership, manna came daily. Jesus says, I'll give you eternal food. After they ate the manna, the people were hungry again. Jesus says, if you eat my food, my bread, you'll never be hungry again. They ate the manna. And eventually they, even though it sustained life in the wilderness and it came year after year, eventually those people die. Jesus says, if you eat this bread, it will give you eternal life. He makes that promise for eternal life three times through this whole conversation. So there's some differences. But there are also similarities because the manna came from heaven. It didn't come up from the ground. It came from heaven like the frost, like the dew. In fact, in in our reading, you probably didn't catch it, but Psalm 105, it refers to God sending bread from heaven. And, And that is the phrase that Jesus takes on himself. Jesus came from heaven. He is the bread of life sent from heaven. Jesus says that about himself six times that he came from heaven just in this conversation. We didn't, haven't read it yet, but later on in the chapter we see that the Israelites back in the time of Moses grumbled. That was why Jesus gave them the bread because they grumbled and complained and then they, they got the manna and they continued to grumble and complain. And twice after Jesus explains this to them, the people with him grumbled. It's the same word uh, from both contexts, from Exodus and from here. And, um, and then the Israelites ultimately rebelled against Moses, and we see here that the crowds deserted Jesus in verse 66. So there's a lot of parallels between, contrasts and parallels, between the events with the manna and Moses and, and Jesus. So... That's interesting from from a literary point. Uh, The Bible geek in me gets excited over passages like this um, where we can see themes and threads running through Scripture and we can connect the dots and draw the lines and and, um, uh, it's just good stuff. And so if you'd like to get into that further, send me an email and uh, we can have a conversation or just come to Grow Through. That's the other option. And... uh, Enjoy the conversation there uh, in not as quite as much detail um, as is possible, but still a good conversation. But here's the bottom line. In this context, when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he's making several dramatic claims. The first is that he's claiming to be I am. He's claiming to be God. He's not a prophet. He's sent directly from God, sent directly from heaven. Unlike a prophet that receives a message from heaven, Jesus is saying, no, I came from heaven. The second point is that he can offer eternal life to people. Jesus says, come, believe me. Believe on me, in me, and you'll receive eternal life. Again, something no prophet ever said about themselves or really much about their message. Mostly the prophets that we think of are 
in, in Scripture are concerned about calling people back to God, calling people back to repentance, predicting the reconstruction of Jerusalem, the, the return of people to the land, predicting that, that God's glory would go out through His people throughout the earth. Those kind of messages. But Jesus says, hey, come believe on me and you can live forever. That's something unique, something really different, something that only the I am can do. It's much like when Jesus forgave sins of the paralytic that came down through the roof and the, the Jewish leaders, religious leaders that were there and they said to him, hey, who said you can forgive sins? Only one person can forgive sins and that's God, not you. And so we see Jesus making these same sort of claims, doing and saying things that only God can do and say. And the third thing is that people need to accept his leadership, or we might say his lordship. If we go back to verse 29, the work of God is this. Okay? People ask, what sort of work do we have to do to please God? What sort of work do we have to do to get this a bread of eternal life? The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Sounds easy, doesn't it? Believe in Jesus. Eat his bread. There's one more verse I want to look at, and that's verse 51. Here Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Heard that before, haven't we? Whoever eats this bread will live forever. Again, we've heard that. But then he defines this even more carefully for us. He says, this bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Again, it's this global sense here. The bread of life is for the world, not just for Israel. But he has to give it. And so, the bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. This is getting serious. This isn't just, oh, I'm hungry, I'm going to eat me some of that Jesus bread. That'll fix the hunger. Jesus is talking about death. Like, that'll stop the jokes very quickly. When he says, believe in me and eat my bread, he's not just saying, acknowledge that I exist and hang around. See what happens. When Jesus says, believe in me and eat my bread, he's, he's calling the crowds, he's calling you and calling me to believe that he really is God in the flesh. And, and perhaps we've been in church so long that that doesn't startle us at all. That doesn't, you know, set off any alarms for us, but but there's an awful lot of people in this world that would laugh at us for thinking that anyone in history has been God in the flesh. There's an awful lot of people that think that we're kind of a little crazy for even believing that there is a God. Let alone that that God left his God house wherever it is to become a human. Let alone to think that that human God 
cares about us or makes a difference in our lives or can give us eternal life. But that's what Jesus is claiming here. That he is God in the flesh. And he says to believe not only that as a fact, but to allow that to permeate our lives. Because if if we have two people, one who believes that Jesus is God in the flesh, and one who believes that Jesus is not God in the flesh, that should make a difference in the way those two people live their lives. Because one lives without any acknowledgement of the existence of a God, or a care, or certainly a God that cares. The other says, God does care deeply for me, and not only for me, but for the world. He came to give life to the world. But I think even a step further is to accept, to, to allow that belief that Jesus is God, to permeate our lives, to accept his death for us. And to recognize that following him and eating his flesh may require us to participate in the same kind of suffering, the same level of commitment that Jesus himself experienced and demonstrated. And so if we go back and say, oh, believe in Jesus. This is, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Oh, easy. Jesus was a real person. It's much more than that. To eat his flesh that he offers, that he gives for the life of the world. Jesus is the bread of life isn't something we take lightly. It's a life-altering statement. One of the contrasts that Jesus makes is that physical bread and water will result in more hunger and thirst just a few hours later. Anyone experienced that? I don't know, it's the 8.30 service, it's too early to be thinking about lunch, right? But, but maybe morning tea, coffee break, you know. Um, we get hungry again. No matter how much you had for breakfast, by the end of the day, you're going to be hungry. And really, all of our appetites are like that. It's not just food. Whether we whether it be uh, the momentary thrill of drugs or sex or fame or, or success or the perfect golf shot or, or, or whatever it is that we try to do that we just do the best we can, it's a momentary thrill that ultimately leaves us empty and, and convinced that as good as that was, the next time we do it will be even better. And, and that, that what we had was just a taste and if I... I keep doing it. I'm going to get better and feel better and life will be better. But, and, and we're never satisfied with what we have. Jesus says, can you be satisfied with me? I'm the bread of life. Think about how much advertising fuels our society. If there was zero advertising in our society, think what you'd lose. You'd lose Google, you'd lose Facebook, you'd lose sports, you'd lose television, you'd lose all kinds of entertainment. Now, some of the things we'd be happy to lose, right? The billboards and uh, whatever else. 
radio stations would be gone. Like all of those things are, are funded by advertising. And advertising is just a fancy way of trying to get you to say, value what we have and give us your money. Jesus says, I'm offering you the bread of life. 1987, the uh, rock group, U2, um, wrote a song that describes all these accomplishments that, uh, that, that they could have done. I just put a couple of them up there. Climbed the highest mountains, run through fields, I've run, I've crawled, scaled city walls. But the refrain of that song says, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. That's what life is like. That's what our appetites are like. That, that no matter how much we get of things, we still won't ever find what we're looking for. I wonder if that describes your life purpose today. I think the question that we need to answer is simply this. What are we starving for? What are we starving for? What motivates us? If you were to think of your a pantry of your life and maybe you have a good career, a good education, or, you know, kids, um, nice car, nice house, paid off house. Um, you know, we, we put those things in our pantry of, of values. Where does Jesus fit into our pantry? Is he our bread and butter? Is he that fancy Sunday we go out for every so often on special occasions? Is he a staple food that we consume each day or is he junk food that we consume each day? But we don't, it doesn't sustain us. What are we starving for? Think back to that song that we played earlier. Lord, I give you my life. I give you my soul. Every day, every breath, I give it to you. It sounds so nice when we sing it. But that's what Jesus is saying. I am the bread of life. What else could you possibly hunger for? And so this is the question that we need to answer. Because the promise of eternal life with God in renewed creation is something worth living for. That's what Jesus, the hope that Jesus gives us. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace.